You 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 know I D I D in the D in the town all day. I D I D in the D in the F E A. You you know I D I D in the D in the town all day. I D I D in the D in the F E A. Now it's time to throw it back again. No longer as far. And let's remember to be sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza with 2015. Because 2015, Pagliacci was peaking. And so was the world in 2015. This secretly was the lost Seahawks season. It really was. Uh, but I, Pagliacci is current, currently peaking, or oh, we're still yet to Currently peak. and always. All right, 2015, speaking of 20 and 15, the Seahawks responded to their loss in the Super Bowl in that one-yard line play by trading for a red zone threat in Jimmy Graham, and it only took them two years to figure out how to pass him the ball in the red zone. Give you up Max Unger It really first-round pick. It's kind of interesting going back and remembering these years and seeing just how reactionary the Seahawks were every single year without us even recognizing exactly what they were doing. Like, this is a trend with Pete and John. I think, I think we recognized it. But I, maybe they were just, when you're winning, you don't pay as much attention to it or, like, what you're giving up for it. And when you're being reactionary and drafting a running back in the first round, it's a lot more glaring than it is than, say, signing Michael Bennett and Cliff Avril. Yeah, I mean, that was just a really good decision. Also, our trust level in the Seahawks front office and coaching was so much higher in 2015 than it is today. On a grander scale, though, what the Seahawks do by being reactionary to what happened, and maybe this is true of all football, but like what Pete and John have done of being like, okay, here's the most notable thing that went wrong last year or whatever. We couldn't score from the one-yard line. We need Jimmy Graham, you know, and that pass could have been going to Ricardo Lockett. It could have been going to anybody. The same situation was probably happening. It might have been a different pass if it was going to Jimmy Graham. But like it is there was one issue that we can pinpoint as like the problem from the previous year. We can't run the ball. We draft for shot penny like this year. We couldn't gain a yard. We trade for Jimmy Graham, including a first round pick. It's just interesting to see how this has been true for so much longer than it has seemed recently. But I think it's also true that just their philosophy generally is, if we got a chance to get a special talent, we're going to do it. And like Percy Harvin wasn't a reaction to anything that happened in 2012. They might have been like, we need more playmaking. I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think that is unfair to be like, I don't think it's unfair, but I don't think that was the only reason they traded for I don't think it was actually just because of the one-yard line play that they traded for Jimmy Graham. Sure, no, it wasn't just because of that. But, like, and it wasn't the only reason that they drafted Rashad Penny was because they couldn't run the ball the previous year. But, like, you know. I think that was a more one-to-one correlation than this was. Jimmy Graham was, like, just the best fucking tight end in the league at this point. It's also, like, well into his 30s. I mean, when the Seahawks traded for him? Yeah, wasn't he? No. How old is he? He's not that old. I'm not even sure he's well into his 30s now. Jimmy Graham is older than you think, always. It's Antonio Gates who's older than you think. (laughs) I would welcome a trade for Antonio Gates anytime. Jimmy Graham is currently 33. At the time of the trade, he was 28. 
well into his 30s. <laughs> okay, no, no, Jimmy Graham was at his peak. And uh, notably, unlike, like, we just had the Jamal Adams conversation, like, I don't think the Jimmy Graham tra- trade worked out because they were not equipped to utilize Jimmy Graham as what he was, which is a slot wide receiver, as opposed to an inline tight end you should ask to block Jadavian Clowney one on one. Yeah, mistakes were bad. But he was under contract at a great number for several years to come because of the situation where the. NFL had ruled that he was allowed to be franchised as a tight end rather than a wide receiver, and the Saints had gained a bunch of leverage in those negotiations. So that was an important thing to remember. I'm going to throw this out there. The Seahawks with Russell Wilson don't need an expensive or name-brand tight end. It's just like what they're looking for from that position can be found on the cheap. It can be found via Jacob Hollister. Uh, Jacob Hollister was not effective. It can be found via Will Disley. It can be found via Will Disley, but like, but we they, didn't know that yet. They actually want from that position more of Will Disley than Jimmy Graham. Correct. So also, Cam Chancellor was holding out this season. Ah. Now, hold on, that did not end in a new contract because he still had, I think, two years left on his deal. And the Seahawks' policy is that they're only renegotiate guys in the last year of the deal. Without Cam playing, the Seahawks open 0-2 on the road, losing 34-31 in overtime at St. Louis after Marshawn Lynch was stuffed on 4th and 1 in overtime no, with the Seahawks driving to match Who or beat the, the safety? Field goal. There was a blown coverage near the end of that game, and who was the safety who replaced Cam? It was a guy who like only played that game, I'm pretty sure. And then he was like gone after those two weeks. But Clearly gone from our minds. Who it is off the top of my head because he was going so quickly. Do you remember? I, I think Chris made us French toast at Katie's house. I remember it as that was the game we had chicken and waffles, but uh, no, I'm pretty sure Chris made us French toast, okay. and we had mimosas at Katie's house, and we had enough I mimosas it was a good time. that I was not bummed. I was not as bummed about this loss as I should have been. <laughs> it was Dion Bailey oh, who Dion played Bailey. two games for the Seahawks and then was gone. Wow. Yeah. I, I have to say shout out 2015 that French toast that Chris made though because it was great yeah retroactive shout out uh, 27-17 loss in week 2 at Green Bay after leading 17-13 midway through the third quarter I gotta say the Seahawks have played in, the, in Green Bay so many times I have no memory of this one it was Sunday night right Was this, this was a Sunday night game and it was pretty brutal was it a Sunday night game Yes, it was. I'm surprised that they led 17-13 through the third quarter. I mean, I mostly remember the 2016 game where they just got torched at Green Bay. And then 2017 was the uh, the Nas Jones Ugh, God, touchdown. Don't even turn that wasn't. That. Yeah. We're remembering through 2017 because that was Different. a pick. That was a no, fucking no. We are not doing 2017. This no, that was a touchdown. That was a touchdown. We can remember that play. Uh, Seahawks bounced back with home wins over Chicago and Detroit, winning the latter 13-10 with Batgate saving the day. <laughs> more like Cheat Hawks, am I right? Wow. Before losing two more at Cincinnati 27-24 in overtime and home to Carolina 27-23. Ugh, that, so this was, man, this was kind of more recent. So this was, the Cincinnati game was the game that Adam Jones returned a punt for a touchdown, Pac-Man, right? 
I don't remember that particular play. You don't remember this? This this was the game that the Seahawks should have won. They were up, or was this later? They were up relatively big, and then they let Cincinnati back into the game late. Like, we thought the game was over. And then they let Cincinnati back into the game, and then they eked it out in overtime. Yeah, they were up 24-7 to in this game. Ugh. Bengals scored 17 unanswered in the fourth quarter, followed by the only score of overtime. But there was not a notable... There was not a touchdown return. Maybe he had a long punt return. Pac-Man had a really long punt return. It was a 35-yarder. He had three returns for oh. 76 yards. I'm like, God, this is one, that's one of those games that I'm still frustrated about to this day. Agreed. The Seahawks still have not won in Cincinnati in the Russell Wilson era since they, they won't get another chance until 2023. I mean, I guess they just haven't had that many opportunities. Yeah. Uh, this also, by the way... This year stands out because I think I feel like this was the last year I attended a lot of Seahawks games. I was at both the Panthers game and the Lions game. So I'm pretty sure that this year Chris didn't have season tickets. He ended up going to some games, but I split it up between you and then uh, the famous cousin Katie and Ben. And then I think Chris went to a couple of games. So uh, that's why you went to war. Right. I mean, you were at the Batgate game, right? I was at the back game with gate game with you, and then I think I went with Ben to the Carolina game. Ah. Uh, and we had because they were like Chris's boss's tickets or whatever, right? Oh, I remember he had I think a customer actually. Who, this is we're getting way too granular. Here. Yes. <laughs> he had a customer who came over and was like, "Hey, I have a couple of tickets if you want them. You could buy these." Which were different tickets, but then he ended up sitting in our seats because he missed, you know, being in our in the oh, section. Yeah. Because yeah. you would rather be with your people than you would be in better seats. So the only loss in the next eight games after the Seahawks dropped in two, two, two and four was a 39-32 home loss to the Cardinals on Sunday Night Football. Another game I attended. Oh my God! This was the game where who is the quarterback who did the thing? Drew Stanton. Drew Stanton. Because Carson Palmer started this game, right? Yes. Drew Stanton was just on the sideline getting hyped. This was a correct. this was a freaking game, though. Like this was game was one of the most fun games that the Seahawks played. Yeah, you've often talked about how much you love this game that they lost. It, but this, I'm saying, like sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, but it is going back and forth that is so much fun. With the Cardinals, were not like this wasn't a bullshit Cardinals team. Oh, this no, wasn't they would, John. They were Skelton, thirteen and like, three. This was an incredible Cardinals team. And this wasn't like the Seahawks lose a game to the Cardinals at home because they score 10 points and they run 85 times. Yeah, no. This, they this score 32 not like, points. The Arizona when we think of Seahawks Cardinals, this wasn't it. This was like Bruce Arians at the peak of his powers with a real quarterback. I mean, they won. They beat the Packers in the playoffs, I want to say, that year. Uh, yes, that was the, the uh, Larry Fitzgerald touchdown in overtime after Aaron Rodgers throws the like Hail Mary drive to get the Packers down there. The Cardinals went to the NFC Championship this year. That is correct. When so, like, to the aforementioned Carolina Panthers. Oh! Alright. Wow. So, we really we dan- danced with all the biggest teams in the league in the regular season this year. We did. Around week 11 is when the Seahawks, for the first time ever, really turned Russell Lu- Wilson loose I- and let him cook. It almost ruined us. Like, <laughs> to this day, I swear to God, the second half of 2015, Thomas Rawls, I want to say, like, 
I don't think I've ever loved a running back more than Thomas Rawls for like those four weeks or whatever. So I mean, Marshall, he was he was a monster this year. Marshall Lynch before got he got injured, in, it was that at Baltimore game. Correct. Marshawn Lynch, Lynch got injured in week seven, and that's when Rawls took over. He'd obviously been playing a little bit. I saw a 64-yard touchdown front from him in that Cincinnati game. It's like hard to believe in hindsight that, like, given what happened to Rawls' career afterwards, and obviously the injury was a factor in it, and the fact that running backs don't so matter good. is a factor in it, but he averaged 5.6 yards per carry. This I was going to say, I don't know what his DVOA is, but I feel like he was the best in the league. I mean, San Francisco, he had 30 carries for 209 yards. That was the breakout game, right? Yes, he previous to that had actually not done much. Had had. And I think there was receiving yards in there too. Three for forty-six. I mean, so, God, Thomas Rawls was so good. All right, so the big wins. Okay, so Russ's stats in this span. It's a seven-game span. Russ completes seventy-one percent of his passes. For 8.8 yards per attempt with 24 touchdowns and one interception. And also just took, took just 12 sacks in that span. I, I'm i just going to throw this out there. Russell Wilson has won a Super Bowl. He will go to the Hall of Fame, whatever. If Russell Wilson is utilized in the right way, in the right offense which he basically has never been any other time period in his entire career. He is just as good of a quarterback as Pat Mahomes. I don't know if I would say just as good, but he's he's up there. I mean, it's interesting because like, play action is a very good use of Russ, but this quick passing game that they had going there, and the only other time they've managed to do it was... What, what game was it last season, the second half, where they did it? Oh, yeah, they whipped out the quick pass the against road. the Steelers. Yeah. Like week two against the Steelers. Yeah, that's the only other time we've ever seen it, other than the end of 2015. They were so like, it, all right, we're good, we're good. In that span, big wins well, over the aforementioned, those same Steelers, 39-30 at home with Kobe Bryant. Incredible Bryan, game. I mean, like, retiring we had in the midst of it. fun games this year. That's the thing, is that Cardinals game on Sunday and that Steelers game on Sunday were some of the best games we have ever experienced as Seahawks fans. That was an afternoon national game, basically, on CBS. Uh, a 38-7 to win at Minnesota and a 35-6 to win at Baltimore in the game of Rawls. Crushed Hunter. Baltimore. Then the Seahawks did suffer their traditional ugly December home loss to a division rival, except this year was to St. Louis on December 27th before destroying Arizona in a somewhat meaningless for the Cardinals DVOA Bowl, 36-6, to but these were the Cardinals entered number one in DVOA, the Seahawks entered number two, and only one team exited number one for the fourth consecutive year, and, and that was your Seattle Seahawks. <clears throat> DVOA is all that matters. I mean, the DVOA championship jersey that Mina Kimes has from the uh, live Bill Barnwell pod at the... Uh, Mina Kimes has that. Us. They may, they may both. Uh, no, Mina, I can't remember if they both got it, but Mina definitely did. Wow. So with the Cardinals running away with the NFC West, I'm gonna buy that on eBay three. in like 2045 for like six thousand dollars. No, why? Why would Mina ever get rid of that? So uh, maybe Bill Barnwell get rid of it. <laughs> they headed. I mean, first off, that's twelve Bill Barnwell to you. 
they headed back to Minnesota is the number five seed for a game in sub-zero temperatures on a Sunday afternoon in Minneapolis. The Seahawks offense never unthawed as Russell Wilson went 13 of 26 for 142 yards, a touchdown and interception. But after trailing 9-0 entering the fourth quarter, the Seahawks took a 10-9 lead before the Vikings drove to the Seattle 9 in the closing seconds with time dwindling. And that's where one man entered Seahawks lit history. <laughs> and that man was Blair Walsh. Blair Walsh. Who's going to stay part of Seahawks history the, a couple of years later, missing a 27-year field the goal. next year, right? Nah, there was a year in between. The Vikings did originally bring him back. Per pro football reference, one of just five missed field goals inside 30 yards in the playoffs in the entire decade. Of the 2010s. Wow. <clears throat> this was I mean, like this, it, it was just ridiculous that this game was even played, though. Like I remember hearing the descriptions of it going in, and like there was the the thrilling Russ play where he escaped a bunch of tacklers and threw it up to Doug yep. and made that catch. But it was like you have basically the best offense in the league for the last eight weeks, and then you're just like, all right, here you go. <laughs> here's some conditions try this out and it was basically the worst conditions that football could possibly be played in because even snow but normal temperatures would have been better than this at least offensively for sure I it's mean, the up there is, with like, the coldest football games that's ever been played like minnesota did i guess have a better record than the seahawks but yeah i guess i can't complain about the fact that they got to host this game because they did have a better record did they yeah. Fuck that. The Seahawks are a better team. Wait, I don't get it. Why, why were the Seahawks playing there? Oh, because Green Bay was also 10-6. and six, so They were the 5 seed. The Seahawks were the 6 seed. I got that right. Wow. The Seahawks were 10-6? and six. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Who would they have played if they would have been the 5 seed? Washington professional football team. Oh, who the Packers probably easily beat. They did. They sure did. 35 to 18. I, if Deion I Bailey remember, could have covered up a, one play against the Rams. Yeah. I Although I the Packers a, would have had that tiebreaker also. Or no, they were also 10 and 6, though. Right. That was the tiebreaker. I went to a Blazers <sighs> game that night, so I remember listening to that Washington game on the radio as I was driving to Portland. Yeah, I have no recollection of that game. But I do have a recollection of the next week, 10 a.m., in Buggy, <sighs> Carolina. And this is the game that haunts me the most. Eh, maybe the Falcons lost in 2012 but like these two in tandem are like i feel like the seahawks were a super bowl caliber team and if you show me that there's going to be a showdown seahawks cardinals to go to the super bowl like we're winning that game well it's funny that in arizona if it had been in seattle the cardinals would have won both times this, if the Seahawks just like win these relatively close games against an AFC th- South opponent, they would have played a team from the NFC West. Correct. Uh, but it's like they're winning that game in Arizona. I just do not question that at all. But the situation of going to Carolina, they were just everything was wrong. There was the pick six that Russ threw, I think, to Keekley early on, and it was just like so discombobulated. They just weren't ready for it for whatever reason. But I'm telling you, they, they came back. And if football games had five quarters, the Seahawks are winning that game. Oh, for sure. So this was it was an even worse start than I remembered. So you've got 
two minutes and 30 seconds in, Jonathan Stewart scores a touchdown after a drive where he has a long run. Less than a minute later, it's the Luke Keekley pick six. Boom, just like that, the Seahawks are down 14-0. Then the Panthers roll out a drive after the Seahawks had the, Seahawks had the ball back, obviously, but after they, they punted. The Panthers roll out a drive where they run 15 plays. It was like the classic Panthers Seahawks <sighs> drive where these games always had so few possessions. And it's 21 nothing shortly into the second quarter. And then... Russell Wilson throws another interception. There was a play where somebody stepped, where a lineman stepped on Russell's foot, right? I don't specifically remember that anymore. That was one of these plays where a lineman stepped on Russell's foot, one of the Seahawks linemen, that made him make a bad play. At halftime, it's 31 nothing Panthers. In the second half, the Seahawks score on four of their five drives, three touchdowns on three of their first four. Panthers don't score but they just run out of time, despite the heroics of playoff Seahawks legend Jermaine Curse, who had two touchdowns. In this two game. touchdowns. What was the final score here? 31-24. Ugh. So the Seahawks kicked a field goal. And I goal. think they got the ball for that last drive where they no, could have tied it up. No, the Seahawks got the, kicked a field goal with one twelve left and were had only one timeout, so they had the onside kick. The Panthers were able to kneel it out after that. This is bullshit. Like, the Seahawks were a better team. Well, did you see... The Football Outsiders' rankings of the best teams of the 2010s. This was on I ESPN did. Insider. <laughs> I did. Because the 2015 Seahawks rated is the number three team of the past decade. Who were the better teams? Well, the 2013 Seahawks were number one. Oh, my God. And then the 2010 New England Patriots were number two. And then the number four team was the 2012 Seattle Seahawks. You can't see me throwing the microphone. They had three of the four best teams of the fucking decade. And won one Super Bowl. I mean, whatever. We won one Super Bowl, but like... At least they won one. I'm sure the 2012 team was pretty damn good, too. No, the 2012 team was the number the number oh. four one. The 2014 team, the team that lost in the Super Bowl, was not <sighs> among the top five. It was the only one in that stretch of the DVOA championship. Garbage, terrible team. <laughs> the DVOA dynasty. Oh. You just could not drop a better situation for a franchise of having an elite defense and then ending up with one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time in the third round. Uh, do we have anything more to say on the Seahawks? Ah! <laughs> I, I, we, we have a reason to be upset about so many seasons during this time period where you're saying... The year that the Seahawks lost at the one-yard line in the Super Bowl was not even their second or third best season during this time period. That was their fourth best season. Like, when we say that we're upset about this or whatever, or the outcome, it's because the stats back us up. It's because this team, for four consecutive years was basically the best team in the NFL and the best team over the last decade. Is that right? 
Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, like I said, if you were to drop the perfect situation, you would take basically the best defense in the NFL and then drop a superstar quarterback to them with a third-round pick. That is how you would drop an NFL franchise. And then you would try to run off most of the defense. No. No. Well, I mean, honestly, no matter what they did with the defense, it doesn't matter. It's that they have not utilized Russell Wilson in the right way since then. The fucking Chiefs, like, didn't have a great defense this year, but they won the Super Bowl in a year that they weren't the best team in the AFC because when you have a quarterback the caliber of Mahomes or Russell Wilson, you should be a contender for a Super Bowl every year. But, spoiler alert, the Chiefs know how to utilize Mahomes and the Seahawks don't know how to utilize Russell Wilson still to this day. <sighs> football did not have a quarterback of that caliber. But they had a promising young quarterback. And Jake Browning, who won the starting job, is a true freshman in 2015 after Siler Miles retired from football. Browning debuted at number 23 Boise State in an awkward game for Coach Pete. It was fun, though. Friday night, right? I mean... My memories of this game are very different than yours because I was at a wedding and watching the game on a cell phone during the uh, during the reception. I mean, so the Huskies hung in there for the entire game. True freshman quarterback playing his first ever start at Boise State is not easy. No. It was kind of a mini version of Seahawks-Panthers. The Huskies trailed 16-0 at halftime, but scored all 13 points by either side in the second half, their touchdown coming on a Dante Pettis punt return. Or there we before, go. Get used to it. Yeah. Cameron Van Winkle missed a 47-yard field goal in the closing <laughs> seconds after Jake Browning had led a late drive. The uh, Huskies lost their Pac-12 opener 30-24 to to Cal before stunning 17-12 win at number 17 USC on Thursday night. This is sort of the forgotten UW-USC game, I feel like. I have not forgotten it one bit. Okay. I remember everything about it. It was lovely. I, I remember watching it at the famous Cousin Katie's. Yeah. I mean, I was like rushing home from work to try to see it. And just, it was like, this was the game where you're just like, oh, oh fuck that defense. Where yeah. you, you really were just like, this defense is something special all of a sudden. Because that was a scary USC team. They, they mostly all are. Well, I don't know. This was the time period where it's like USC meant something. And since then, they've definitely gotten worse. But like UW's defense going in there and just stifling USC. I remember they had some stops early. And it was like, yeah, they got some stops, but we'll see what happens. And then it just happened again and again and again and again. You're like, oh, they replaced all those superstars. You know, because we were going into this year being like Shaq Thompson's gone. Danny Shelton's gone. Marcus Peters is gone. Who's going to replace them? And all of a sudden, it was like, this is this is the defense that's going to lead to multiple college football playoff games. Yeah, once the offense... Or, or mul- multiple, not college football playoff games, but multiple years of New Year's Six games. Right. So, <sighs> the next week, the Huskies... Or no, I guess they, there was a win in between, but... Uh, or yeah, no, the next week, they lose to an Oregon team that came in unranked. Vernon Adams, as we mentioned, had transferred. They played Eastern in the first game with Vernon Adams. Uh, He had 19 
completed 19 of 25 passes for 246 yards, two touchdowns, ran for 94 yards in that one. They lost at number five, Michigan State. Then he gets injured in a game at Utah and misses basically all of that game where they lose 62 to 20. They beat Colorado without him, and then they lose 45-38 at home to Wazoo without him, and fall. they've fallen completely out of the rankings by this point. But Adams comes back just in time, of course, yep. for them to beat the Huskies 26-20. Yeah, I remember there being quite a few years of being like, <laughs> honestly, even still, of being like, this is the year that we own Oregon. <laughs> Until it finally happened, but it, it was short and fleeting. Let me just say. So they followed that up with another loss at number 10, Stanford, and then also lost back-to-back games to number 13, Utah, and at Arizona State before finishing wow, back to place. this strong. year was way more negative than I remember it being. Yeah, I mean, they just weren't quite ready for primetime. John Ross was injured this year. You know, they weren't there. They would get there, but they weren't there yet. It was It was a building year. I feel but, like we still, despite all of these losses, felt pretty good about the team in general. Yeah. It was like you said. The defense was great. The offense was very young. Because they're also starting a true freshman running back in Miles Gaskin this year. Like, it was clear they were going to get much better in the future. And they finished the season very strong. A 52-7 to win at Oregon State in the penultimate game of the regular season, followed by a 45-10 demolition of a ranked number 20 Wazoo team in the Apple Cup. Just love to thrash Mike Lee James. Did they play a bowl game this year? They did. Oh, is this Southern Miss? Sure is. This is the Zaxby's Heart of Dallas Bowl? It is! There we go! God, this game was so fun. By the way, I didn't realize the uh, that... Apple Cup. The Huskies had three defensive touchdowns. This was the game where they, I forget who was Wazoo's starting quarterback at this point, but Peyton Bender had to start the game. Oh and yeah, fifty-eight passes. Peyton Bender. This was it was what's his name, big name quarterback. Luke Falk was the starter. Yeah, Falk. Uh, there were there was uh, two interception return touchdowns and a fumble return touchdown in this one for the Huskies. Okay, can we can we revisit the Southern Miss roster from the Zaxby's Heart of Dallas Bowl? I am always ready to revisit. <sighs> At quarterback, Nick Mullins. Nick Mullins! At Pretty running good. back, Ito Smith. Ito Smith! And at wide receiver, the other, other Michael Thomas. <laughs> A Michael Thomas. <laughs> the LA Rams Michael Thomas, I believe. Anyways, that's a pretty good skill position, group. It was a talented Southern Miss team in the Zaxby's Heart of Dallas Bowl. My favorite part about it, though, was you and I visiting the Zaxby's website. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I have subsequently been to a Zaxby's. Really? I remember there was Texas toast involved in a lot of meals. It was. I I went in Charlotte when I was there for the All-Star game. What was your review of Zaxby's? I mean, I had a very light meal because I was eating before I was going to Charleston, and I was going to eat uh, a substantial. I was going to eat shrimp and grits in Charleston, so I was excited about that. Tell me more about Charleston. <laughs> well, I was alone there. <laughs> <laughs> alone in Charleston is the lost podcast ballad. <laughs> uh, Nick Mullins in this game. Throws for 331 yards and two touchdowns, but the Huskies still win it 44-31. Man, 
finish that, the season on a high note. Yeah, big win. And ending that year in general with the win over Wazoo, I mean, obviously you're playing Peyton Bender, you're not playing Luke Falk, but still. And those guys needed that win to get bowl eligible. They were only 5-6 and six coming into that game. Oh, wow. And they got to. I was going to say, I remember them being 7-6 and six this year, so I guess that makes sense, yeah, because they had the Wazoo win and then the Zaxby's Heart of Dallas Bowl. I mean, they were four and six because they beat Oregon State. It was the three-game winning streak to end the year. Okay, let me ask you a question. Did Atlanta debut in 2016? It did not. Or in 2016, ah. it did. It did, but we remember in 2015. I, I looked this up bef- even before I went through the TV shows. I badly wanted to talk about it after watching the uh, the Juneteenth episode. Because there's an episode <laughs> where a person asks Paperboy if he wants some Zaxby's. That is correct. Do you remember this? Yeah. And he's like, hell yeah, I want some Zaxby's. Yeah, he's like, it's not and even we, a question. <laughs> we knew what it was because of the Zaxby's Heart of Dallas Bowl. I mean, they've been running commercials before, but we were more aware of it because of that. We we were prepped. We were prepped for it. <sighs> we have to wait until next year to talk about Atlanta? Yes. Oh, well, believe me, there's going to be something very exciting to talk about. So UW men's basketball was a very odd season for the UW men. The season started well. It's the Upshaw year. It is the Robert Upshaw year. Transfer from Fresno State, who had sat out the previous season, making a huge impact defensively as a seven-footer in the middle. The Huskies avoided their traditional early non-conference home loss and won the Wooden Legacy Tournament before getting a pair of ranked wins over number 13 San Diego State by a 49-36 final <laughs> at Heckhead and number 15 Oklahoma and Buddy Heald, 69-67. Dick Bennett, Dick Bennett loved that one. In Las Vegas. That brought the Huskies Ball to 11-0 and number 13 in the country before they finally got that Traditional home non-conference loss to Stony Brook and their oh. star Jameel Warney. That started a four-game losing streak, including the first three games of Pac-12 play. All of them losses by single digits, all one in overtime. The Huskies bounced back with a three-game winning streak before a blowout loss at number 12 Utah. And then, and I can remember the grocery store I was in when this news came down, Robert Upshaw was kicked off the team for disciplinary reasons, and the bottom fell out. The Huskies lost their next seven games and went 2-9 and nine the remainder of conference play before losing 71-69 in the Pac-12 tournament opener to Stanford to end their season ignominiously. Yeah, I mean, you're right about this being a strange season. And I remember us talking early on about it where it was like, you know, they were undefeated. They were number 13 in the country. We were treating it as a given that they would make the NCAA tournament. It's very rare that a team gets as high as number 13 and then finishes 11th in conference play. Wow. And things got really dark at the end with Nigel Williams-Goss. He sat out some games and uh, then transferred to Gonzaga after the season. Sat out a game, I guess I should say. The Sounders advanced in the CONCACAF Champions League, which was the highlight of a disappointing season that looked at times like the end of the era. They won their group featuring Honduran side CD Olympia, who most recently came into Seattle and won the uh, last Sounders game we attended. Heard that name recently. Yeah. And Cascadia rival Vancouver Whitecaps, largely on the strength of two goals after the 90th minute in their home leg versus Olympia, a game I attended. Uh, Brad Evans scored the winning PK in the 97th minute, much to the dismay of the Olympia team. Uh. The Sounders season fell apart 
worth in this game you attended on the night of oh the NBA draft. The U.S. Open Cup match versus Portland. Was the night of the draft? It was. Who was drafted? That's why, that's Who's why the... I wasn't there. Like, who, who was the... drafted? Who was the number one pick in this? Was it the Anthony Bennett draft? No. Who was the number one pick in the 2015 draft? Carl Towns? Yeah, Carl Towns. Oh, yeah, I don't even really remember this draft because... You were there. Was that a Sanders match? Uh, this was definitely the most memorable soccer match I've ever been at. Things happened. Aside from being like, you know, we were there when Landon and Donovan missed a penalty kick in the MLS Open Cup. So this was at Starfire. It's a weird environment in general, right? right. Like, we bought GA tickets kind of on a whim. We're just like, sure, all right, they're playing the Timbers at Starfire. What the hell? We might as well go. And we're taking our two young children <laughs> to this, right? Yep. And so we end up with tickets in the, basically the end zone, right behind the goalie, like two rows back. I touched a ball during this match. Is how close we were. Like we were very, very close to the action. And you could just feel that things were getting a little bit ugly as it was going on. And it was, it was like we got to extra time, and it became clear. I think Martins got sent off, and we were no, there he, for... He was injured. He injured his hamstring. Oh, that's when he got injured. Okay, so Obafemi Martins, we saw him get injured. And he he was one of the star players of the center's attack, and it was like, things are turning a little bit ugly here. And again, having two small children, the very, like, was Marco was tiny at this point, right? Yep. We were just like, we gotta get the fuck out of here. <laughs> like, this is weird. And then we get to the car, which we were parked in the Starfire parking lot, and I swear to God, I thought that, like, a riot was going to break out. Sorry, groin, by the way, technically, for Ovimi Martins. It was, like, by the time we got there, the crowd was the most aggressive I have ever seen a sports crowd. And I, I think... If there would have been any sort of inciting event, aside from, obviously, the events on the on the pitch, I think that crowd was ready to just lose their minds. But it was like, things had turned real ugly in this match. I mean, Clint Dempsey gets ejected, picks up the referee's book that he writes whatever, cards or whatever in, tears it up, throws it on the ground. It's the craziest shit that's ever happened. <laughs> I mean, he got like a 10-match suspension for it. And all of this is happening. This is not at CenturyLink Field. This is in Starfire, which is a tiny place. Yes. Like, if it would have been at CenturyLink, everything would have felt much more controlled. But the fact that it happened at Starfire, Starfire was like, there was a real element of danger leaving that match. Where it was like, if things get ugly at CenturyLink, they can handle it. You know, there's there's a lot of staff, there's infrastructure, there's a separation between the pitch and the fans that does not exist at Starfire. And if thankfully nothing particularly bad happened, but I remember leaving there being like, this is a this is a very strange feeling that we're feeling right now, and something I have not felt around sports in my entire life. I guess he wasn't suspended as long as I thought I, he was. He was only suspended for three games. Oh, I thought it was more. And then he was also suspended for the next two years of U.S. Open Cup matches. Basically. <laughs> uh, but then he was away from the team because then the Gold Cup occurred that summer, not much, lo- not long after that. So they, so the Sanders were without Martins because of the injury, Dempsey with the Gold Cup, and they lose eight of their next nine matches. 
then were unbeaten in their final five, eight matches, going 5-0-3 and to move back into fourth in the West. Beat LA Galaxy 3-2 in the knockout round before losing on penalties to FC Dallas in the conference semis after a wild finish to the second leg. All three goals in that one after the 84th minute. First, FC Dallas scored, which at that point gave them the lead thanks to the away goal tiebreaker because they had lost 2-1 in Seattle. Then the Sounders scored a goal to take the lead in the series 3-2 on aggregate. And then Dallas scored again to force extra time where neither team scored before the penalties. Ugh. And we really thought there were going to be massive changes after that. And there were some some pretty substantial changes, as it turned out. But it was not time to rebuild. Very different. Very this different was outcome. the last season of Clint Dempsey, though, correct? He was back the next season, but the next season was... Uh, he doesn't play much. Well, he was when he first had to be away from the team due to his health. So... 2015 was marked by number one picks for the Storm. Brian Egler left after the 2014 season to coach the rival L.A. Sparks, and assistant Jenny Busek was promoted in his place to oversee the rebuild. The Storm took Jewel Lloyd with the top pick of the 2015 draft and Kalina Mosqueda-Lewis with the third pick acquired from Connecticut for Camille Little. Uh, Shout-out to Camille for uh, her wedding and uh, Shakina Strickland, while also losing Talisha Wright in free agency, leaving Sue Bird as the last remaining rotation player from the 2010 championship wow, team. Wow, Talisha Wright. But the real prize was the top pick in the 2016 draft. The WNBA announced a change. I, I recall this being mid-season, but maybe it was before the season, where they based lottery places on two-year records giving the Storm a big edge over the league's worst team in 2015, San Antonio, coached by Dan Hughes. Very He's not happy about this move. Uh, the top spot in the lottery came down to the season finale between the two teams, and the Storm tanked mercilessly. <laughs> Sue Bird sat out. She had sat out you know, regularly late in the season. And starters Lloyd, Alicia Clark, and Crystal Hangorn played seven minutes each as the Storm lost 59-58. Wow. Clinching the top position in the lottery, and 11 days later, they won the right to pick Brianna Stewart, number one overall. It is kind of interesting when you think about such small margins that lead to, like, I mean, drafting Brianna Stewart is the difference between the Storm winning a championship years later and not, basically. Yeah, I mean... And it was because sweet. of tanking. I gotta say, tanking works. Yeah, tanking, tanking is, you know, like, it gets a bad rap, but tanking works. <laughs> And they won a fucking championship because of it. Like, who was the second pick the year that Brianna Stewart was drafted? Mariah Jefferson, who has been an undistinguished WNBA player. I would there say. you go. But it's also got to be the right year. And that was the right year. Just really tank whatever, but okay. I mean, there have been other years where it has not yielded the same results. Uh, the Mariners changed directions again after backsliding, despite outing Nelson Cruz, who defied concerns of regression with 44 home oh, runs. Oh, he was a monster this year. Yeah. And a toast to Nelson Cruz on the award he won during the SBs. The M's slipped 11 games in the standings due largely to the pitching staff falling off. The bullpen was not the same. Fernando Rodney got rocked as the closer. And GM Jack Zarensic was fired in August followed by manager Lloyd McClendon after the season. Wow, Lloyd McClendon. This was the year we went to a Mariners game for Baby Fantasy Genius's birthday, right? It sounds right. I, I remember going to a couple of baseball games this year, and Nelson Cruz hitting homer after homer. Just dingers. Just dingers. Uh, what about Husky softball this year? 
you're gonna have to fill for a second while I look that up. Oh. <laughs> uh, I don't know if this was a memorable year for Husky softball necessarily. Maybe you should go ahead and just add it to your notes to have every year. Well, maybe we shouldn't do that many more years because we're into 2015. Oh, let's keep it going all the way through 2020. (laughs) (laughs) This is a terrible idea. I'm allowing 2016 because we didn't resume the podcast until late in the year. So a lot of things we didn't talk about. You're saying that next week is the end of remembering some years? I am... Well, unless we go backwards. But wow. also, again, we're going to have sports uh, to talk about. Like, sports is back. remember remembering some years. <laughs> I don't know about that. In 2020, can we remember when we remembered the years? Uh, yeah, that year the Huskies were sent on the road for the regionals, playing at number five seed Alabama, and lost 11-1 to to Alabama and 9 nothing to Alabama in that double elimination format. So <sighs> they were... Soundly routed, let's say. Ouch. Uh, so the Blazers, uh, this this was their first year in the post-Lamarcus era. Uh, well, no, this is the last year of the Lamarcus era. Okay. So 2014-15, they started off looking like contenders in what everyone said back then was a wide-open league because there was only a team winning 67 games that was going to win the championship. Uh, the, but the Blazers opened 12 and three and were 41 and 19 when Wesley Matthews and I've uh, I'm I'm using my Wesley Matthews Blazers glass tonight in honor of this team. Wow. Uh, went down with an Achilles rupture on such March a bummer. 5th, which is cruelly ironic because his nickname was Iron Man because he was so durable. Injuries mounted late as the Blazers finished the season 10 and 12 in the final 22 games and on a four-game losing streak to end the season. But they still were the number four seed in the West as Northwest Division champions because that Kevin Durant season where he had the Jones fracture was happening. There we go. The Jones fracture comes back. Bringing it all back. <laughs> but they started the series. They were. They still did not have home court advantage against Memphis, who had a better record, is the five seed. Blazers narrowly avoided a sweep, but lost in five games despite a breakout series from CJ McCollum, who averaged 17 points per game. And then basically the entire starting lineup, but Dame, like not basically, the entire starting lineup besides Damian Lillard was broken up over the summer. Aldridge signed in San Antonio as that summer's marquee free agent. Matthews went to Dallas, getting more money after DeAndre Jordan didn't go there. Robin Lopez went to New York. This was the Eyes Emoji summer? And Nikola, yes. And Nikola Batum was traded to Charlotte just before the draft. It's funny because they broke up the core of that roster but ended up with the core of what would be a better team for the Blazers after that. And really, I know there there was chatter of like, you know, LaMarcus didn't like that Dame Lillard ended up being the billboard in Portland or whatever. But like, they made the right move ultimately by building this team around these two guards and CJ and Dame. Which I don't know if that was their plan A, but yeah, it worked out in the end. I, I definitely know I went to a Mariners game the night that Batum got traded. I remember writing the trade grades before. We went to a lot of Mariners games this year. Big Mariners games. All right, should we talk about music? I think 2015 might be maybe the best year of music that we've talked about. Or at least up, it's it's in the conversation. It's one of the most interesting years of music. That's for sure. All right, where should we start? Well, why do you say it's one of the most interesting years of music? Well, like, 2013, I think, was a pretty big year, but it was all, like, 
the artists who have been big the entire time, basically. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, there's a there's an interesting mix of people in 2015. I could see that. I mean, we have to start it at the very top, which is with one of the best records of the entire year or of the entire decade and longer in Tipipo Butterfly. Yeah. I mean, much anticipated, I think, understates things. Uh, I believe All Right was Pitchfork's top song of the 2010-2020 decade. Wow, was it? And it's like even more and more over time just becomes a more important song where it's like Kendrick Lamar as like the public voice of this generation, clearly undisputably, even though Drake had a monster 2015 Kendrick Lamar is, as we mentioned, the indisputably best rapper of life. Yeah. I, I mean, remember Drake, seeing Drake was moving out of the rap game by this point. But it's like, Drake is not, he wasn't competing with Kendrick for the best rapper alive. Agreed. He, he, he was, had Drake was a pop artist. And Hotline Bling was a bigger hit than any song on any, it was bigger than King Kunta. It was bigger than anything on any Kendrick, on any Kendrick record. Ever. It was the song of the summer. But like, All Right will last forever. It had more behind it. All right is like a change is going to come for our generation. And Hotline Bling is a pop song. But that's not to disparage what Drake accomplished in this year. I mean, I was looking through the playlist that you sent and seeing that if you're reading this and Hotline Bling came out in the same year. Yeah, he was like, that wasn't enough. Uh, You know, the... the, uh... The, if you're reading this, it's too late, which brought us immortal lines running through the six with my woes. Ugh. And then he decides to drop Hotline Bling after that. I refuse to accept that woes. I know that he was talking about like woes is his friends, but I refuse to accept the idea of running through the six with your woes as like your sadness. That to me is the coolest shit I've ever heard. <laughs> You've always had this take and yeah, I buy it. I just, I always want to hear, like, because we're the six or whatever, right? Different six? Yes. 206. We're, running 206. I was like, I, we've had we've all had some nights where you're running through the six with your woes. <laughs> it is true. Right? Let's say that it's a rough loss to the Arizona Cardinals. Uh-huh. You're running through the six with your woes. Running 206. <sighs> but I remember seeing uh, Kendrick with Thundercat on the Colbert Rapport. This is before he was ho- before CBS or whatever. Before he was Stephen Colbert. This was the Colbert Rapport. And it was Kendrick and Thundercat on there and just being like, my mind was blown about where Kendrick was at musically. You know, like he had advanced beyond anything else that we'd heard before at that time period. Yeah. It was also a big year for sort of like I don't want to say vibey per se, because, you know, we talked about Mac DeMarco last week and the, the vibes generation, I think, comes a little bit later than this. But like this moody music that starts kind of quiet, right, and then keeps building on top of itself. That's like how I would really describe a lot of the like electronic leaning pop singles of the time period. Uh, Jamie XX 
and that record that he put out, or his like the single "Good Times" with Pop Can and Young Thug, and then having his the XX bandmate Romy on a track, or was like, or even Miguel. There's songs where you're just like, this is like, it's like moody and then keeps building on top of itself. That's like the sound of 2015. That makes sense. I, I would say not that I didn't like it in the moment, but the Miguel album Wild Heart was like on the replaying it for let's remember some years was right there with, up there with anything in 2015. Like I already had leaves in my top 10 of the year, but still it somehow jumped up a notch in hindsight. Like it was, it was deeper than I remembered it being. Also in 2015, as far as building things. Well, wait, I, w- I don't want to just jump past Jamie XX because one of my defining memories of that year is yes. that was actually somehow the first block party that I had ever been to. Really? Are you kidding yeah, like me? I would picked you up after countless block parties, but somehow 2015 <laughs> was the last year I actually, you, <laughs> you actually got me drunk in. after countless block parties. So many, <laughs> so fucking many. I just, I remember. I talked shit, there. but, but would, were that we all had a brother who would pick us up drunk after Capital block party. <laughs> Oh, uh, well, you just talk crazy mess. Afterwards. Oh, just facts, you mean. <laughs> but I remember sitting in VIP hearing the first strains of wow, first uh, ever block Loud party. Places. First ever block party, and now you're talking about hanging out in VIP. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, the, but the first strains of Loud Places, and it's like... Oh, this is the shit. Well, I mean, obviously, I already loved it, but I was that was looking forward. I remember to that, that it was just set such a being not very good, though. Yeah, I I don't even have strong memories of the set. Just that moment of being there and hearing that first the uh, the opening notes of that, and just being so excited. So there are two music attending memories. That's yeah, actually three probably. Wow. Because we got we got to get okay. So there's, there's there's a lot to get to. So number two music memory. This was earlier in the year chronologically is going to see Sufjan Stevens on the Carrie and Lowell tour at the Paramount. Man, I did you a lot of favors in 2015. You did. You might have picked me up from countless block parties, but you were backstage. It finally paid off. Free tickets, I think, to see Sufjan. You actually might have had to pay for those tickets. Um, <laughs> at the Paramount in like the fourth row on the Carrie and Lowell tour. Devastating tour, right? There's like... I'd seen Sufjan a few times before this, but this was the one where he's like, he's getting emotional, right? Like this is a record about his mother who just died. And like, he really is just the general concept of death. A lot of it. And I, I remember telling our uncle Paul, who I think it had been well over a decade since our grandma died, but it was like, he still, I think it still felt very fresh to him. And I was like, Paul, been, been almost to, two decades for the record. Listen to Carrie and Lowell. And he was like, I know you said that I would like this record. I didn't know that it would be exactly about my life. <laughs> <laughs> and being at that show, it was like, it was the perfect set, right? The Paramount's the perfect place for it to have been. And like the, the mood, everybody sat the entire time. It's a dark set for Carrie and Lowell. It's an emotional set for Sufjan too. And I'm there as basically my first year working with this agent 
and we're backstage. Like we all walk backstage after the set. Do 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 do. Like Suvian's up there, basically crying while he's performing, and his agent is after a while introducing us to Sufjan. Yeah. And just like the most fucking awkward experience <laughs> where it's like, he does not post post show pre show is never great to meet an artist post show after the Sufjan show is also never great to meet an artist. <laughs> like he's, there's so many people who are behind an artist on their team that they don't even recognize most of the time like an artist their manager is talking to the agent more than the artist is he has no idea who the fuck any of us are right yeah. let alone our brothers who are back there <laughs> <laughs> and so it's just like we're like hey like great to meet you we all sort of stand around awkwardly if i recall correctly and then sufian's like okay i gotta go <laughs> Do you like Offer us a? Did he offer us a drink? Mean, maybe he's your the agent. You're, Allie, you're, Allie was yeah. like, "Do you want a drink?" Because she she was like. But the other thing is like the relationship between artist and agent is really not that close of a relationship. I have learned over time where like he's not talking to his agent all that often, and so the the whole thing was going to be awkward no matter what. <laughs> and you throw into that just like having multiple people who had nothing to do with his career. You're there, and it's just like he's playing this emotional set. It was not a fun time. Okay, so the third live music memory. We'll talk about you... next next summer when I told Luca that I was going to introduce him to Killer Mike. Oh. <laughs> uh, you also got me in for the first time into Block Party. Or, no, sorry, not Block Party. Bumper shoot that year. And. Uh, we saw the weekend fresh off uh, his second like made major album, Beauty Behind the Madness. This was not his second major. This was when the weekend became the most famous person on earth, or one of. I remember but it was we, a because he had like the EXO trilogy, but I'm not counting that as the as weekend one of label was release. cool initially. It's so cool, yeah, and uh, probably the coolest pop artist in the entire world. Initially, and then I remember being like, "Oh, the weekend's fucking tired," you know. The EXO trilogy is that what they call it? like the Thursday or whatever, yeah. uh, and that's what those of us in the know call it. And the weekend for initially when he came out was the coolest artist on earth, basically, in the iPod generation. And then there was a lull where it's like, and he was releasing pop music or whatever. But it didn't it didn't hit in the way that it eventually was going to hit and he was going to be number one through three pop artists in the world. And I remember driving to but so Bumbershoot was taken over. I think this is the first year that AG was putting on Bumbershoot, posed one reel. And we were driving to the Tri Cities for Water Follies and seeing along the way along central Washington ads for the weekend headlining Bumbershoot, and I was just like, that is a stretch <laughs> i remember being like like that artist is not big enough and then in the three months leading up to it it became a steal for ag like the weekend had hit after hit and it was like the hills can't feel my face can't feel my face earned it often yeah he became basically like aside from drake basically the biggest pop artist in the world and then it was fucking massive by the time Bumbershoot came around. And that's why it was the perfect show for Luca to attend. 
old was he? Three. He was three? Jesus Christ. <laughs> there was so many people smoking oh, weed in, oh. in the audience. Oh, it was a great time. I really exposed him to a lot of things early on that his brothers were not exposed to. And then he, he decided that he hates all of them. He rebelled against them. Against all I, of what? Well, people swearing in particular, which uh. was, there was a lot of that during that set. That said as well. I also remember the weekend regu- like every three songs or so saying, "My name is the weekend music," or like you know this is, and it's like we we know we're, we're aware. <laughs> yeah. you're famous. Yeah, it was new. He hadn't he hadn't been in Uncut Gems yet. You know what I mean? <laughs> it was still, still new to him. Oh my god! Well, also a bummer shoot that year was Father John Misty, who yeah. this was. The final year of Letterman in 2015, right? Yeah. Speaking of Colbert Report, I remember Future Islands were invited back, so they had their huge performance uh, where they where they performed seasons in 2014. They were part of one of his final episodes in 2015. I was did they at play a, seasons again, or did they no, play they the, chase, the chase? Which was their, okay, which is was one of my top tens of songs oh, in 2015. Fucking hit, by the way. But we were at a company retreat. I was there with future islands manager slash agent or whatever and he was at this company retreat while his band was in new york playing one of the final shows for letterman and now in hindsight i'm like damn wow you really missed that which is kind of crazy uh but it was a really cool moment seeing like the entire company was there it was like 30 plus people all gathered around watching future islands not live but on tv that night on letterman and previously that year, we had Father John Misty playing Bored in the USA, and that really felt like a moment. Oh, yeah. On it Letterman. took off. And by the time he played Bumbershoot, though, he had been touring for, like, so long, and oh. it was just way over it. He's over everything at this point. Yeah. Yeah, the persona was being over it, but he was actually even more over it. <laughs> he was over being over it somehow. I don't know. This was a pretty fun Bumbershoot. It was. It really was. So we had that Sunday night of Bummer shoot. Heading, were you at the summer night? Sunday absolutely, night? I was. This was heading into Death Cab, who headlined. No, that wasn't that year. Yes, it was. Ellie Goulding headlined that year. Oh, maybe it was Tame and Paula heading into. Was it Tame and Paula heading into Ellie Goulding? I don't know. I think Tame and Paula might have been the next year. Oh, maybe it was the next year heading into Death Cab. Was that 2016? I think so. Oh, okay. Um, well, I do remember this was the year yeah, it was current by Tame Impala, and so there was the next year Sunday night, where it was like I'd always resisted the Tame Impala thing. I personally am just like I fucking loathe modern bands playing classic rock, or it's like that is not interesting to me whatsoever. And I heard Let It Happen. I was listening to Hype Machine, popular no remixes. And <clears throat> Let It Happen came on. I was just, like, working or whatever, not even really paying attention to the music that was happening. And it was like, what is this? <laughs> I was like, who is this band? And since this time period, there's probably songs that I like better off of Currents. But it was like, oh, for the first time ever, I get Tame Impala. It all makes sense now. And then every single song that you would hear from Currents was just like the hookiest thing that you could possibly hear. 
It's like, the less I know, the better. Every single song, it's like there's a massive hook to it. And it totally makes sense why now they're Coachella headliner. You know, like why what Kevin Parker is doing has translated to the masses. But this was the first moment where it's like, oh, fuck, I actually understand what's going on here. Uh, do we want to talk about Car Seat Headrest? Same thing. Precisely the same. On the indie rock level, hooks after hooks after hooks. The first ever time that we'd heard of Car Seat Headrest, and they had a re-release Teens of... Was it... Teens of Style was the first. Teens, Teens of, of Style, style before Teens of Denial. Oh, correct. Teens of Style, a compilation of a bunch of songs from the like eight Bandcamp records that Will Toledo had put out on uh, prior to signing to Matador. Compiled them all together. Something soon. Luca's favorite song. What I really am kind of bummed to not have children who like indie rock anymore, <laughs> or like cool music anymore either. I'm like, dog, tell me about Roddy Rich. You know what I mean? Like anything. I'm like, what are the kids into? And he's just like talking about fucking amiibos and shit. But like having somebody else to experience that with was very fun at the time. Uh, and then leading into Teens of Style also came out in 2015. Yes. Wow. I mean, the back to back of those where it's indie rock music, but again, hooky, just like on top of itself. This is catchy music as packaged through indie rock. Uh, do, do we want to talk about Post Malone arriving on the scene? <sighs> I, I just want to say that I think this was this was really the last time Spotify became a big deal around here, and I think this was the last time that we had massive non-Spotify artists, if that makes sense. Like there was White Iverson, there was the original Cha Cha by Drum. I think that XXX Tentacion was happening around here. It was SoundCloud, like. There were artists who got massive off of SoundCloud, Sound, SoundCloud pre-Spotify, and it was like this was underground hip hop music that it was like pigeons and planes music, right? Like this was blogosphere. This was cool music at the time, which is hard to believe that it's... Post Malone could feel cool now. But I, I mean, swear to God, in 2015, Post Malone felt. Like one of the coolest artists there were. I vividly remember. I actually tweeted about this. I was like so amazed to hear uh, White Iverson on like the hip hop station in Portland. And I was like, "Wait, is this like some you know unusual thing that you're doing in Portland?" And I didn't realize that not everyone now was playing that by this point. But then that like within a couple of years. Every song in those stations would become Post Malone. Yeah. <laughs> what if you made the entire rap station out of Post Malone? <laughs> oh, no. <sighs> but I, it is, it really is like hard to imagine how cool Post Malone felt for a moment and just how instantly that would change. But I also have to say, like, we have the debut of Instables, there was the Blue Suede mixtape. There are not mixtape, but EP that had come initially, but like Northside Long Beach after that North North on summertime 06, where it's like, this is going to be a vital voice in hip hop to come after this. 
you know, like this felt like the the new generation of blogosphere hip hop. Uh, do you want to talk about Courtney Barnett? This was the one where I was just like, "Fuck, 2015." It's like, "Damn, 2015 goes deep." I've got three records in my basement here with me. I've got two of them came out in 2015. So we have Sometimes I Sit and Think and Sometimes I Just Sit by Courtney Barnett. We have Feels Like by Bully and then Kiss Your Frenemies by Illuminati Hotties. So two of these three records came out in 2015. All actually quite similar stylistically or whatever. Yeah. But like that Courtney Barnett record just uh, but the similarities between like Courtney Barnett and bully and talking about these moments so vividly, but I was listening to depressed in today and it was just like when Courtney Barnett's singing about like, we have that percolator, I saved $23 a week or whatever. It's just like, Oh, there's, there's nothing better than having these moments that feel so mundane, but so specific, you know? And it was the same listening to feels like by, Bully, where it's like on I remember where uh, Alicia's singing like you know I remember what you do for Christmas or whatever where it's like it's so general but so specific that I feel like that that is like a tenant of this era of I guess indie rock or whatever all right I think opposite of indie rock but I think we have to mention hello was in 2015 Yes. The great SNL sketches. I was gonna say time. that track is just like you can't. It's undeniable. Everybody loved it. You. Th- this was universal music. I also want to throw a shout out to uh, Girls in Peacetime Love to Dance, or Want to Dance, I should say, which uh, was another one that like stood out much more to me on the re-listen than back in 2015. I was going to say, this, party is, line. this was the moment where like the, 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 the fucking Venn diagram, you know, like where it parallels, where, where it flips over American cases become more than European cases or whatever. You start liking Bell and Sebastian more than me. <laughs> I've never heard this song before. It is a great song. It is the song I've listened to the most over the past week. Really? Yeah. I might have heard it, it the so one time that Perfume Genius opened for Bell and Sebastian, but all right, 2015, great year for music. Oh, so good. But also, but I, I, I just have to say, also, Lean On by Mo. Yeah, and the Grimes record. I didn't know that I would. Feel complicated feelings about Grimes five years later, which I have to say, five years feels like an eternity sometimes. And then sometimes when you get to 2016, four years can feel like two eternities. But Art Angels by Grimes, incredible top to bottom. And Lean On by Mo was the actual song that we cared about the most that year. Before Mm. is in a commercial or whatever. I don't know if I'd go that far. I mean, this is the first year that feels like really like, oh, that doesn't seem like that long ago to, to me. Like there was the the album Kintsugi came out in 2015. And I was like, wait, didn't that come out like three years ago? And it was like, no, that was actually five years ago. It's not that big of a difference, but yes, it's a it's a substantial difference. 
It's even way too early for it to have come out. That was my conclusion. Son of a bitch. Give me a drink. I listened through to my favorite songs, 2015 or whatever. Just like, fuck, I love all these songs. 2015. Brought to you the most important television show in the history of the fabulous Dalton cast. And that show is, of course, Ballers on HBO. There we go. Wow. We were fucking... We were anticipating this show coming out. We watched every second of it. We saw writers Richard Mendenhall, and we said, hell yeah, I had him on my fantasy team. Uh, I mean, just the pitch of Entourage for sports was like, okay, see what you got here. (laughs) But also, The Rock was like one of the most famous actors in the world. Yeah. And was still bizarre. He's continuing to do a TV show as recently (laughs) as last year. (laughs) We knew at the time that The Rock's passion project was Ballers on HBO. He just wanted to spend more time with Rob Corddry. Wouldn't we all? Did we have a name for the first season of Ballers on HBO? That started with the second season, right? It was Ballers on HBO was the first season. I see. Yes. It didn't need it. Every single time we talked about it, it was Ballers on HBO. It still is. Yes. On our, when we were feuding with each other. (laughs) (laughs) Not Not recording a podcast, feuding with each other. Whenever we talked about Ballers on HBO, it was Ballers on HBO. 2050 also brought us a much-discussed series in the early days, The Last Man on Earth, because that was an exciting premise. Will Forte, the name of the show is The Last Man on Earth. Is there going to be anyone else on this show besides Will Forte? And the answer turned out to be yes, sadly. Far too many people, to be honest. I really wanted to explore the studio space with Will Forte, you know, doing Castaway, but in a world where not everyone else, he can't, he can't hope to be rescued because there is no one else. Man, when I, when I searched 2015 in film, it's really quite bleak. We've got wow. straight out of Compton. Oh, was that, you know what? I missed that somehow. Yeah, that was 2015 because I saw the Dre album that went with it. The, the Martian, the Revenant, it's like, yeah, okay. Well, Spotlight. Speaking, speaking of rough movies in 2015. The Entourage movie? I have actually still to this day never seen it. Wow, you've never seen... Russell Wilson had a cameo in that, right? I, I know. I know that Russell Wilson had a cameo, but I have actually never seen that film. He's gone from cameoing in the Entourage movie to hosting the Aspects. So what can he do? To blow up. It's real. Uh, Star Wars The Force Awakens was 2015. So this was excited for that one. December 2015, I want to say? Yeah. Yeah, those movies always come out in December. Right near the end. I mean, I remember me and Ben Rodriguez went together, went and had dinner beforehand, went to see some Star Wars. It was... Sounds like a lovely evening out. It really was. And you see it and you're like, wow, that really reminds me of Star Wars A New Hope. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was the idea. I, I saw it in Portland uh, when I was down there for the... Uh, for the, what's the name of the comp? The Les Schwab Invitational. I wonder who was in that that year. The old Schwab Invitational. Uh, it was a just fine movie. 
Uh, oh, so that was the Markel Fultz year in the wow. Schwab in 2015. He didn't, yeah. Was he a senior? We're talk, he was. We're not going to talk about him for a couple seasons because that was the 2015-16 basketball season. But Markel Fultz outdueled in that one in the game. So you're the admitting that we're going through 2017 and remember? No, we're not going to talk about it. We're not going to talk about it. <laughs> yes. No. <laughs> Entrapment. <laughs> Oh no, the old tournament team. Uh, but he outdueled the team from West Linton, starring one Peyton Pritchard. Wow. Uh, the old tournament team. It was actually been Dijon. in college as many years as Kevin Thompson. No, that is not true. Peyton Pritchard's only been there four years. As Dejon Davis years. was also on the all tournament team, and Lindell Wigginton, who went to Iowa State. Matt Coleman, I think, also went to Iowa State from that Oak Hill team. You're just naming names now. I am. Yes. Greg Phillips. Markell was pretty effing excited to see him in person after he had already committed to UW. Well, you'll hear about that in 2017. And uh... no, <laughs> we're going to have sport, real sports to talk about soon. Why do you? Also, these podcasts keep going two and a half hours. I don't think it's been that long. We spent it at least 45 is. minutes talking to Mateo. <laughs> You'll get that if you keep listening. Man, 2015 in film was, or in TV and film was pretty bleak. Well, there was so much good music. Yeah, it, it was, was only made up so much by, uh, Drake releasing two brilliant albums and Kendrick Lamar releasing maybe. We didn't even, we didn't even talk about Drake also was on Jumpman that year. I drank just like hit after hit after hit. It was another one, another one. And Hotline Bling, I think ultimately was the song of the year, you know? It was the song of the summer. Hello, I think, still was the song of the year. Oh, God, hello. I mean, the the Drake meme of him being like, yes, no, is from the Hotline Bling video, right? That is correct. That is a five years on. It's an iconic video. Oh, it's got more staying power than Hello had. I Like, that meme should not be lasting for that long. I... I mean, I think a lot of memes last a long period of time. That's that's pretty impressive, though. Five years for a meme. The thing about it, it's it's not it's not been running to the ground somehow. Huh. Well, join us next year when we talk about the uh, crying Jordan meme. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, thanks for listening. Thanks.